The Bakari Sellers Podcast tackles the most pressing current events through conversations and interviews with high-profile guests. Building upon his experience in South Carolina government and politics and his experience as a lawyer, Sellers will talk to his guests about all topics from the world of politics. Check out the Bakari Sellers Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. David Shoemaker is going to be along in just a few minutes to guess the strained pun headline. But first, we've been talking a lot about the experience of foreign correspondents in Ukraine. Our guest today, Philip Crowther, is on the ground there right now. You probably remember Crowther as the TV reporter for AP Global Media Services, who was doing live shots from Ukraine in multiple languages. He speaks and reports in six, English, Spanish, French, German, Portuguese, and Luxembourgish. Crowther is in Lviv in Western Ukraine. We recorded this interview late Tuesday evening local time, about an hour after he heard an air raid siren. In fact, it was the fourth time he'd heard the siren that day. Here's Philip Crowther from Ukraine. All right, I'd love to start, Philip, by just asking you, what did you do today? That's a good way to start. Um, I actually went to a funeral. Um, I went to a a funeral of four uh, service members of the Ukrainian army. It was a funeral service uh, in a Jesuit church here in Lviv. Um, There were a lot of of media there, a lot of people, a lot of soldiers, family members crying, Um, a mother, I believe, um, daughters, sons of soldiers who lost their lives. This happened in the uh, attack at the weekend, um, the Russian missile attack on a military base not far from here and not far from the Polish border that killed at least um, 35 people. And these four soldiers were among them. So um, there's a way for us to notice how, um, remember how close the war is, despite the city where I am being a a relatively calm place. Um, There were four soldiers who were buried here today. Did I see on your Twitter account that an air raid siren was actually sounding outside the church right before the funeral? It actually did during. Um, I, I just uh, left and heard it outside the um, the church doors outside with quite a few people 
listening to the service actually from from outside because they couldn't get in. That was uh, such a a full uh, church for this service. So the people inside also heard this um, this air raid siren. Uh, we had quite a few, we had it go off quite a few times here in Lviv today. Uh, first time I've heard it in the daytime uh, twice. It didn't make people leave the church. Um, it didn't make people you know scamper for cover. Um, I think people are relatively used to air raid sirens. Um, maybe there's a false sense of safety because there haven't been any attacks on this city so far. But yeah, there was a, a reminder for us of, first of all, that church service of the cost of this war, and also with the air raid sirens, a reminder of the risk uh, that still exists and, and the danger that, that all parts of Ukraine are in right now. So that's what you did today. What's a typical day like? You wake up, you read what, you go try to see what? Yeah, try to see as much as possible here in the city that uh, you know is not affected directly uh, by the war all that much. Uh, it's all relative, of course. This is a city that has a lot of refugees who've passed through, and a lot of them are here right now, passing through, essentially. At one point, at least, there were 200,000 refugees in the city on top of a population of 700,000. Uh, so it's an enormous um, uh, increase in population here. Uh, a lot of refugees are in are in the city right now. This is also a city that is organizing humanitarian aid uh, to then move it on to the east and the center of, of Ukraine. Uh, but what does a normal day look like? Well, I try to get as many impressions as I can of what daily life is like here. But, you know, a lot of my work is to summarize what is happening in this war generally. And I depend on my AP Associated Press colleagues who are on the ground, uh, either in the capital Kiev or even closer to to uh, the front line. Essentially, not that there is an official front line at this point, but we have journalists who uh, are eye eyewitnesses to to what is happening right now. Um, so I read their accounts. Uh, you know, we have a Slack channel, we have WhatsApp groups uh, through which I get my information as quickly as possible. And the other thing that you know I have to be sure of is that anything that I use on air is 100% obviously accurate, uh, but also based on AP reporting. Um, so I have a very close look at what we are going with um, and, you know, don't follow uh, rumors uh, and the like. Um, so that's important, you know, just to just to get my head around um, the the actual facts of the day and, and make sure that I don't veer from that. When you're moving around Lviv, are you with a translator, with a cameraman? Who's with you in those Encounters. Well, sometimes I'll go for a walk by myself. You know, this, this is something that maybe from further afield, uh, people don't understand that this is a city that feels very normal uh, on any given day, despite a war happening in this country. It's it's uh, it's strange how people, you know, go for walks on a Sunday and some restaurants are open. And so you can go for a walk by yourself. You don't have to be in a team, you know, as as tends to be the case in, in most war zones. Uh, we have a producer with us. Um, producer or fixer uh, basically someone you know when you when you go abroad to a place where you don't um, speak the language you have someone who's called a fixer you know a a someone with local knowledge in our case it's Oli uh, from from Kiev uh, who actually came over here to Lviv with our previous team who were reporting from Kiev when they had to essentially leave when it got a little bit too hairy she helped them um, get here to Lviv which was a pretty treacherous journey but she knows uh, you know she knows everybody uh, it feels like and so she's somebody who I rely on quite a lot for translation, but also for for local knowledge. Uh, we're a team of four here, so uh, camera operator, producer, uh, myself, and uh, and a fixer slash producer. You uh, the APGMS uh, tweeted out 
uh, a couple of weeks ago that you were available to do live custom live shots in six different languages. So how many live shots do you do a day typically? Well, the first day I arrived here in Lviv, back in Ukraine for uh, my third stint, I did 21 live hits. Um, wow. So that was quite a lot. Um, it didn't, it wasn't a 24 hour day um, because, you know, some, some come in quick succession, you know, within an hour, but yeah, it was 21 live hits in five different languages. Um, so, you know, some days are particularly busy. Now I'm talking to you between two live hits, one in Spanish uh, for a a German channel, and then one in English for a channel that's based in China. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of what the, what the day looks like, you know, adapting to all sorts of different languages and worldviews and, and channels. Um, so it's been busy. And when you're summarizing the news, do you find channels in different countries want different things from you or want different things highlighted? You know, that's very interesting. I get a really good insight into the different worldviews that channels have, what their priorities are um, without naming names of specific channels, but there might be one or two who are more interested in the immigration angle. And, you know, what that might imply is what does all of this, what does this refugee crisis mean for us? As in, what does this mean right. for one particular country, uh, a country that might be, or a channel that might be worried about another migration crisis on their borders? But generally, with this story, because it's such a such a big worldwide story, and it's everybody's priority right now. It is everybody's top story. We all spend a lot of time thinking about um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that it's really the facts that everybody wants right now. Um, also, my experience on the ground, but more than anything, the facts. They want to come to somebody in Ukraine to summarize the story. And so it's been, it's been pretty homogenous, actually, uh, across the board. There might be one or two channels that might want something a little bit more personalized, you know, where I might be able to tell an anecdote here or there. Uh, but others just want, uh, you know, the the bare naked facts, you know, what is going on on the ground right now? Um, and, you know, are there any diplomatic talks happening? Uh, those will be questions that will be repeated from, you know, from one channel to the next throughout the day. Uh, this is one of those rare occasions where there isn't really that much of a local angle uh, for each channel. Um, there isn't a German angle on this war. There isn't a British angle on this war. No, everybody just wants to know what is happening on the ground. Facts meaning movements of Russian troops, diplomacy, like you said, something in the aftermath of an attack, like the one near Lviv the other day, casualties, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, what's the latest on the ground means um, are Russian troops advancing? Um, what kind of attacks have there been on the capital city? How close are troops to this and that city? Is a, is a city like Mariupol still besieged or are people getting out? Uh, how are diplomatic talks advancing? Are there any chances of, of a ceasefire, local ceasefires, humanitarian corridors? Just the, the, the urgent facts that people really, really want to know right now. My co-host and I have been talking a lot about the mechanics of live shots because we've been watching cable news and seeing reporters like you standing in front of the city at night or standing in front of a particular site. How do you decide where to set those up? Well, it's interesting. Uh, for practical reasons, most channels try to be high up, basically. Uh, so you've got a nice city view, essentially, uh, not just in a war zone, pretty much on any story you could possibly uh, beyond. We have the added problem that there is a curfew here uh, between uh, 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. So we couldn't broadcast from the street. So we actually broadcast from outside two apartments that we've rented um, in central Lviv. 
That's how we decide where we broadcast from. Others are broadcasting from hotels, all of it for their ease uh, so that you can go from working inside to doing your live shot and going back to working inside, even you know, in case of bad weather. It's been very cold here, for example, and you, you need to be somewhere you know, protected and quiet so you can concentrate on, on the work at hand. You can't do all of your live shots if you're doing a 20-hour day in the street. Um, you've, you've got to be somewhere where you have an office, uh, that kind of thing. But you do want to make it, you know, look somewhat um, symbolic of the place that that you're in. So we're looking for a backdrop that, you know, looks like you're in Lviv. It doesn't mean much to many people, but you want a little bit of a panorama, if you will, of the city. I think that's what's so interesting is the message conveyed by those shots. Because as you say, it is a nice city view within a country that is at war. And I'm always interested on how that plays at people at home, because you know, we watch that and there's certainly a, you are there element to it, but there's also, we're making judgments just based on the fact of what is behind you at that particular moment. Yeah. I even had a presenter uh, yesterday uh, mentioned that the weather was nice where I was, which is a very quaint thing to hear when you're reporting <laughs> on a war. Uh, but it was, you know, it, it tied in with that whole idea that I was trying to convey that day of it being just a normal day in this city of how strange it is, how surreal it is that life goes on uh, despite there being, being a war, not just on the doorstep, it's actually right here. There have been attacks very close to here. And yes, the the backdrop that we are displaying right now is one of a city that is calm, even picturesque at times. But you're seeing something similar from Kiev right now, which is a city that's almost under siege. When you look at most of the live shots, they are from a central hotel with you know an Orthodox church in the back backdrop that looks very ornate. That's nowhere near uh, being attacked, um, and you know it looks it looks very pretty. So there is, and then you've got correspondents on air wearing, you know, flak jackets and and helmets. It's it's a very, it's a very surreal sight, really, and that's kind of part of the story that that I think we're trying to tell uh, that there is a, a war happening in a place that, well, that first of all is 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 very nice and very pretty. Uh, you know, you don't want to see Kiev being attacked. Um, you don't want to see a city like Lviv being attacked. Um, these are uh, these are very special places. But you've got to be in a position where if something happens, you can also see it and you can report on it. You know, you all you 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 think about the worst case scenario. What if, you know, there is an airstrike or an artillery strike close to you? Will you still be able to report on it? Um, for example, in our case, we would probably have to move from being in an outdoor position um, on a rooftop. We'd have to move somewhat indoors you know put the camera indoors maybe i would stand in the doorway or even you know you do it with a closed window when the worst comes to worst you know i think there's a there's a lot of leeway uh, and the viewer will accept that the live shot is not going to be pristine countries at war are often heavily policed by government minders who tell reporters where they can go and where they can't go and often ride along with them what's the situation like in ukraine well, look, it's different in Kiev and in places that are besieged, of course, to to where I am here. But you do, I wouldn't say that you see a jitteriness in the police or in the military that you see in the street. Things are very calm. But our lights have drawn a little bit of attention. You know, we've got very bright lights on a rooftop. Uh, and we have a lot of neighbors who see us doing what we do. And some of them are people who have come here from the east of the country or central Ukraine and have seen bad things and are suspicious. And that's that's fair enough. So we've had a few visits from the police um, to make sure 
that we have the right credentials, that we're not doing anything untoward, and and we've been fine. Uh, but you know, any live shots that we do after say 9 p.m. local time, we try to keep the lights to a minimum so that people don't get scared, basically, um, from there being these bright lights uh, that might attract some sort of attention. You know, we, as, as journalists, we try to be self-effacing as much as we can. It's difficult when you've got big, bright camera lights, but we try to do it. When you're walking around the city, do you wear credentials identifying you as press? No, we don't here. Uh, we carry them in our in our pockets uh, just in case. I've had to show them a few times. Uh, we're allowed to walk uh, in the city outside of curfew time or rather during curfew time, um, but you might be stopped. So we carry them along. We, I mean, what, what, what is really fascinating about this is how quickly a country falls into war, if you will, or in this case is invaded and has to adapt. Uh, we have, we got credentials after just a week uh, from the armed forces of Ukraine that were specifically made for this war, that specifically said this credential allows you uh, to report from the front line and we take no responsibility for what might happen to you. It's it's quite astounding how quickly those things are organized, but you do have to have press coverage of a war and you have to facilitate it, otherwise the story can't be told. And uh, the armed forces of Ukraine are very aware of that. Uh, and have adapted to that. So there is a special credential that we have that gives us a little bit more freedom to um, to report as we choose. You're based in Washington, D.C. Normally, what made you decide to come and report from Ukraine? Not my decision. <laughs> um, I would want to be here anyway, even if I, uh, if I didn't have people telling me this is where you should be. This is... Uh, a war that none of us wanted to see. I'm a European. I don't want this to happen, but it is probably... It could be the biggest story of our lifetimes. Um, we don't know. It comes just after a pandemic that also we thought was the biggest story of our lifetimes. So you just want to be here as a reporter. Um, but in my case, um, there is just no no choice. This is where people want reporting from and where I can provide it. Uh, so there is just no question that this is the place where I have to be right now. Obviously, not all the time. Uh, we're doing rotations, uh, meaning that this is my third time in Ukraine. I'm going to leave soon and come back a fourth time. Uh, and every single time, the country's different. And um, I'm a little bit afraid of what it might look like when my next rotation starts, which is in two weeks' time. Um, I don't know whether Lviv will still be this peaceful place that's the way it feels right now. I don't know what the capital city, what kind of a state the capital city will be in. But uh, you know, this is one of those occasions where I don't have the choice, but I'm also more than happy that uh, I'm being told this is where you're going. You've done this before. Libya in 2011 covered coup attempts you said on your website in Venezuela. How did those experiences compare to this one? Well, strangely enough, I'm inside of a country at war and it doesn't always feel like it um, because there is a part of this country, the west of the country, that has been largely spared. The cities haven't been attacked. Uh, military targets have been hit. Um, and the, the, it felt like the war has come a little bit closer over the last four or five days because there have been attacks in the West as well. What's different to Libya, for example, that was in 2011, is I was right in the middle of the war. Um, the front line was shifting constantly. You might be behind enemy lines, in front of enemy lines. Things shifted so quickly, you, re you really didn't know exactly. It was incredibly chaotic. And very risky as well. Uh, it was a very chaotic war, that one. It was at the time when Muammar Gaddafi, um, the leader of Libya, um, was trying to attack uh, the rebel stronghold of Benghazi in the east. 
there was a back and forth essentially uh, for weeks. And you might remember there was a no-fly zone imposed, which is, of course, something that we're talking about in Ukraine quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was there during that time when um, uh, when warplanes started attacking Gaddafi's troops. Uh, that was just very, very chaotic. Uh, a coup attempt in Venezuela is is different in the sense that it didn't succeed. Um, it 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 was a bloodless coup that didn't happen. Um, it was just you know quelled very quickly, but it made for jittery streets, undoubtedly. Um, it's a regime that um, can get violent uh, with journalists, with um, opposition activists, with protesters. So you felt that uh, that nervousness in the streets, and and you know, yes, bulletproof vests and and you know a little bit of security and and all that. So um, not a war zone, but uh, a place that uh, where we had to be careful. Do you feel something like fear when you're in those environments? Yeah, I think so. I think you should. Um, otherwise, you're you're not going to be safe. I think you have to be a little bit. You have to have a little bit of fear, uh, confidence as well that you know what you're doing. I think um, in in case things go bad, you have to have that confidence that you'll be okay, that you can take the right decisions. Um, but you also have to have that little bit of fear. You can't be nonchalant. Uh, that's how accidents happen in all walks of life. So I think there's a there's a I wouldn't say healthy, but there is some kind of a um, a mix, if you will, of of a little bit of fear, but also the confidence to know what you're doing and the will to get the story, of course, and put those put all of those together, and you know, hopefully, you're going to be okay. Uh, but in 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 a war zone, you know, something terrible can happen from one moment to the next that you can't control. So um, that's also a feeling that you will have a certain lack of control. Can you describe how fear resides in your brain in a situation like that? I mean, do you go to sleep thinking about it, wake up thinking about it, minute to minute think about it? How does it how does it play out? You know, here I don't really feel it uh, because it's a, this is a again it's it's a strange, somewhat safe place uh, within a country at war. So we have air raid sirens here that wake us up during the night occasionally. Um, that doesn't make you jumpy, but it makes you aware. Um, you know that's when you should be going to a basement, but also, you know, listening to see if there are any detonations somewhere. Are there any explosions? Anything that sounds like a thud. Um, so for a, you know, you're going to be very awake and very aware for, for you know ten to fifteen minutes thereafter at least. That's not fear. That's just an, an added awareness. Um, the f- the fear maybe would start once a city like this one was truly attacked. Hopefully it doesn't come to be. Uh, we're not in that situation yet. Uh, but you know, that wake up call could happen at some point. Um, you know, uh, the Kremlin or Vladimir Putin has decided to attack other places and this one could come along as well. It's not tactically important, militarily important, but that hasn't kept him from attacking other cities. Um, rather aggressively uh, and in a very deadly way over the last three weeks. I want to ask you a little about, bit about your background, Philip. You grew up in Luxembourg and you were speaking which languages growing up? Well, I think I, I would say I started with English and German. My father is British, my mother is German, and they always spoke in their respective languages in front of my sister and myself. So what that means is if we were in the room, my dad would speak English to my mom and she would answer in German and, you know, and vice versa, essentially. 
So uh, it's a strange, right? I mean, to, to think about a couple having a conversation in two languages, but that's what they did to give us this bilingual education. So, you know, we got these two languages, I'd like to say for free, you know, we, we heard them at home, they become, I don't believe in a mother tongue, because essentially, I have a mother tongue and a father tongue. Luxembourgish <laughs> is the language I learned with with my friends in uh, uh, growing up. And it's it's a language that feels like a mother tongue to me as well. Uh, and French, I learned at school very early on, not exactly a mother tongue, but almost. And then I studied Spanish and Portuguese. So that's that's how you kind of come to the grand total of six. And I read you did a stint as a sports writer in Uruguay in the 2000s. Yeah, in a sense, what was that that's, like? That's, that's kind of where, where things started in a sense. Uh, I uh, finished my studies. It was Hispanic studies in, in London. And um, didn't know what to do with myself afterwards. You know, what do you do with that? What what's what's the what's the career path exactly? Uh, and a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, who is half Uruguayan, half German. Um, you know, we were, I think it was, we were literally on the last day of of classes, and she said, you know, my my uncle offers all of us um, traineeships in his newspaper El País in in Uruguay. I don't want one. Do you want it? And I said, yeah, let's go. And so, you know, I got into the sports um, section, which is, you know, my my really my real passion is is, is soccer and, and and other sports. And so, you know, I was able to do a traineeship in a place, a traineeship that was unpaid, I should mention, in a place where life was a lot cheaper. So it made a lot of sense to me. And uh, I think that's where I first got the feel of a newsroom and, you know, the fascination with with news gathering and I started to understand a lot of the mechanics of how these things work and I think that's that's probably where it all began. I think it was last month we all saw this video of you speaking in six different languages and offering essentially live shots. That was you who tweeted that out? That was the APGMS where did we where did where did that come from? Yeah, it was me. It's my own fault <laughs> that this whole thing uh went viral at some point. I, I make these videos um, when I'm on, on location, when I do the six languages, which is not always the case. You know, uh, Sometimes a story doesn't interest a German-speaking audience, and I won't do a live shot in German. But if I do the six, I try to collect them and make them into a one-minute clip. Um, you know, uh, People's attention spans are rather short, aren't they? So one minute, no more. <laughs> so I, I cut these things. You know, I, I edit this thing together, put it on social media, and then you know, see what happens. And the most recent one, got rather out of control and ended up on on a few late night shows and uh, I'm happy to that it you know I'm happy that it went viral for the right reasons you know a lot a lot of people go viral for the wrong reasons because they do something <laughs> stupid maybe they fall over you know whatever might happen on camera and in my case it's it, it was something that made a lot of people think isn't it great to learn other languages so you know I can't complain and it functions sort of as an advertisement to the world's news stations like I am available if you need me to report yeah, I think so. And there were some that got in touch afterwards and said, you know, um, so this is what you do. I mean, maybe you could do something for us as well. Yeah, it's an it's advertisement for myself, but also uh, for what we do at at, at AP and in, in, at GMS Global Media Services. You know, the kind of uh, the service we have, which in this case is. Um, you know, book a live shot with us, and and you'll have a, a guy in front in front of the camera who'll who'll speak your language, hopefully, um, and who can do it. You know, it's called you know we call them custom live shots, meaning that I can adapt to their needs, and um, yeah, it's a little bit of viral fame doesn't uh, doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll end here. You mentioned you're about to leave Ukraine. You'll go where when you leave? I'll go back to D.C. That's where my family is um, for hopefully two weeks, and then I think I'll be back 
here. Uh, I might, I, I would be going other places, you know, wherever, wherever big breaking news stories are or, or big news events. I should, I should have gone to the Oscars um, in LA. It fits very nicely into this, you know, break between stints in Ukraine. But it just, you know, we've had this discussion um, internally, and you know, decided that doesn't make sense, and it's not a, it not, not necessarily a good look. Uh, for someone to go from a very serious story like this one to a red carpet and then back again. So um, I'll miss out on the Oscars uh, this year because more serious things are happening in the world. Uh, but yeah, back to DC for two weeks, um, try and concentrate on my family and not think too much about the news, um, which is rather impossible. And then um, then come straight back to to a country where, again, you know, I, I, I f- I'm a little bit afraid of what it'll look like in two weeks' time, how much might have changed, because it's only been three weeks and it's been a relentless war that has changed a lot in Ukraine already. So, um, yeah, this is, I wouldn't say this is my second home, but um, I'll be i be—I'll be coming back to, to this country for the fourth time already. Philip Crowther, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, it's time for the second weekly edition of David Shoemaker Guesses a Strain Pun Headline. All right. Monday's headline about McDonald's and Russia was war and Greece. Today's headline comes from our great friend Katie Baker. It's from City AM. Not a publication I was totally aware of before reading this headline. Uh, The story, David, is about something everyone is obsessed with. The consequences of high gas prices. Mm Mm-hmm. Subhead reads, record petrol prices could hurt retail sector... Warn experts. I'll spot you a word. Fuel. Fuel. I could have gotten that one. All right, hold on. Read me the read me the subs. Read me the the subhead again. Record petrol prices could hurt retail sector. Warn experts. Fuel economy. Fuel. Fueling fears. Fueling. Um. Fuel. Uh. Hmm. Fuel. We'll have a lot of regrets about what's going to happen to the retail sector here. Regrets. Regrets I've had a few. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> regrets I've had Not a literally fuel. regrets. Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, mm-hmm. uh, regrets. Um, apologies. We, we almost Apologies will be, will be tendered here. Uh, so, so uh, oh, yeah, man. sorry. Okay. Sorry. sorry. Fuel sorry. and sorry. Oh, feeling sorry for myself? Feeling sorry for... <laughs> <laughs> the answer is fuel be sorry. Oh, fuel be sorry. All right. Fuel be sorry. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production <laughs> manager by Erica Cervantes. Back with Mr. Shoemaker Monday for more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. <laughs> See you later, Brian. I think fuel and sorry for myself is good. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Contact City AM uh, with any editorial suggestions.